This is a production for Equal Voice NL. My name is Gina Gill. I'm an independent journalist in Newfoundland Labrador. I'm here with Laura Lee of Equal Voice. And each day we're going to be interviewing a different candidate who's running for the municipal election. The name of our podcast is called Polyfem. And we're excited to speak with female candidates about their experience during the running. Today I will be working with Laura Lee Oates of Equal Voice and candidate Sheila O'Leary. And so now you're Ward 4 counselor? Yes. So I ran, so I I was an at-large counselor from 2009 to 2013. Um, one of my main focuses for sure, but, you know, there were many, of course, as an at-large counselor, uh, was the environment. Um, and I can certainly talk more about that afterwards. But after 2013, I was very, very uh, dissatisfied. Uh, with the level of leadership at the city and I decided I was going to run for mayor. So I ran against an incumbent, the existing mayor right now, Mayor Dennis O'Keefe, um, and it was in 2013 and it was, you know, against an incumbent. We were a half province in 2013. It was high time, so there wasn't really a crisis on the table. So I think people were pretty, you know, easy going about their election and uh, I, I did very well. I got 42% of the vote which was nothing to turn my nose up to. I think it was, you know, it was a great accomplishment, but it meant that I was uh, kicked off council, right? I was knocked out. So, um, and I knew I wanted to get back for sure because I had a taste of it at that point. So, uh, so I was kind of cool on my heels. I was working in a nonprofit organization uh, for some time, which was really great, continuing the work that I normally do, volunteer. And, uh, um, and then there was a by-election opportunity uh, when, um, Bernard Davis ran for the Liberals for the MHA position and he got it. He was successful. That meant he left his seat open, which was Ward 4, which is the ward that I grew up in. So it made a lot of sense to me to take that opportunity and run for it. So I did and was successful. I, I won that seat. So I have been the Ward 4 councillor now for just over a year and a half. And you made your announcement to run for deputy mayor mm -hmm. in this upcoming election. So why the change in position? Because it's quite obvious I ran for mayor. I'm very interested in a stronger leadership role. Um, I have a strong voice. Um, I'm an artist by trade, but uh, uh, that encompasses a, a whole uh, wide spectrum of things. It means I'm, a, uh, I'm somebody who does... Uh, creative production, uh, uh, marketing, communications, um, uh, self-employed businesswoman, uh, like I said, a single mom. I've managed to stay afloat and, and have a successful career up to that point in time. And all of those things feed into the capability of being a leader. And um, uh, I just know now after the experience that I've had and the level of leadership that I have seen uh, that I was more than capable of fulfilling that role and I certainly was very interested in public service and speaking for the people for the residents of the community okay uh, I you almost answered my first question because uh, when I first met you you were known mostly I think as a photographer in the city right. renowned photographer really uh, and you know an arts activist community activist uh, and one of the things we often hear about women is that, you know, they, they seek to advance on being women rather than having merit. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on it already, but what kinds of skills do you think that, like, a community activist, artist, arts activist has to bring to the council table? 
I think, first of all, you just have to give a damn. I think you have to be a caring individual. You have to love the city that you're living in or the town if it's, you know, another municipality. I love where I live. I love, I'm born and raised here. I, I, I see such beauty. I'm a, an outdoor enthusiast. Uh, I'm a mom. I want to create a, a safe, beautiful place for my children. And I hope that they will, you know, choose to stay and live here, but at least give them the option, um, you know, not only in terms of a healthy environment, uh, but also economically viable for them to, to live here as well. So I, I, I'm very passionate about this place. I really, it truly is in every single bit of my body and every pore. Um, and I think when you have that kind of fire in your belly, I think that is the driving force. Um, so there are guaranteed days that I question my sanity. There's no doubt about it, about why you would do this, because municipal government is truly where the rubber hits the road. There's all these different levels of government with federal and provincial levels. You have a level where you're slightly removed from your constituents. You have legislative mm -hmm. assistance. You have people who, you know, constituency people who help vet your calls and your emails. And, and uh, it's not saying that it's not difficult work. It is very difficult work. But municipal government is where you do all of the work. You're directly in contact with the residents. They have issues. They go straight to you. Mm -hmm. Plus, you're expected to be a big picture thinker and somebody who can help try to control the economy of the city's budget and the taxpayers, what you do with their money, as well as creating a, a more beautiful, more progressive quality, you know, style of living for, mm -hmm. for the people in the city. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge job. It is a huge job, but it's also very exciting. I find it a very empowering place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You reminded me kind of like of this, my favorite line or one of my favorite lines from the TV show, The West Wing, where President Bartlett says, school boards. Now, that's where the real governing takes place. And, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like, um, you know, very kind of frontline services take place at the municipal level. And it's a lot more important to us than people sometimes think. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's been really hard a lot of times getting women on city council. It is. Um, so with all that in mind, do you want to talk a bit about the policy platform that you're working on? Well, you know, for me, there's an, a number of different issues. Certainly, you know, building quality neighborhoods, environment is, has been a huge part of um, the work that I've done. Uh, when I was first on council from uh, in about 2010, I was all, there was all these environmental issues that I was trying to grapple with. And I remember always lobbying and saying, oh, well, you know, we had just, just, started the recycling program which was great it was that was such a coup because we were begging for that for years so that was getting under wraps but then then the person who our environment coordinator that position got dissolved and kind of got eaten up into the landfill and the curb at uh, St. John's program but there was nobody there there was no source if you want to deal with pesticides, if you want to deal with the stewardship of uh, wetland issues, if you want to deal with any kind of environmental issues at all there was no avenue to do so. We had the Public Works Committee, which of course you deal with, you know, the bricks and mortar of water and sewer and paving, which is, you know, obviously, you know, the mainstay of, of running a city. But there's much more to it than that. And I realized that we didn't have any avenue to do so. So I kept on harping on it about how we needed to hire this new person, this environment coordinator. And finally, I, I think I had just driven the City manager, absolutely nuts. By that point, he finally, you know, we, we started digging in. And sure enough, there's supposed to be an environmental advisory committee that everybody forgot about. 
It just, it just, just was forgot. not a, just <laughs> forgot. It was not a priority. So, needless to say, I I rebooted that. I got that up and running, and I became the the chair uh, of the committee. And it was so exciting because all of the issues that were being neglected, like urban forestry, how important that is, wetland stewardship, uh, pesticide issue, which was one of the biggest things that I lobbied on, certainly in my first term, which was actually a provincial mandate, but you know what, we need to show leadership at the city of St. John's on behalf of the whole province. Um, and and the list goes on. There's more and more coming all the time. And of course, you know, as of late, of course, one of the big things that I've been supporting, which again is a provincial uh, resolution, is the um, ban on single-use plastic bags. These are all things that I think could really improve the quality of our life, improve our environment directly. And if we can't maintain a healthy environment around us, well, then we have no future. So, you know, I see that as being very important. And I've been one of the really one of the sole voices on council since that point in time to really speak, um, you know, heavily to that issue. Mm -hmm. So that's something I'm very, very passionate about. Okay, so on that note, um, you know, climate change is obviously a really important public policy issue lately. Uh, and in fact, you know, when um, the United States pulled out of the Paris Accord, you started to see a lot of American cities coming out and saying, uh, 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 not so fast, we support the Paris Accord. Yeah. So, you know, and that goes back to our theme that, you know, municipal governance is really important. So what kinds of things do you see that um, the city of St. John's can do to address climate change? Because, you know, there's a lot of young voters that, you know, will probably listen to this podcast and climate change is a really important issue for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, one of the things in terms of the building supplies that we use, how we actually manufacture uh, uh, housing, uh, LEED has been, you know, the, you know, not so up to date right now, but it was the thing that basically uh, entailed that people construct buildings in an environmentally sen- more sensitive way. Uh, rooftop gardens, how we, you know, urban forest, I can't say enough about an urban forest, how that actually benefits a community uh, because, of course, it's oxygen, oxygen producing, uh, it, it also creates flood mitigation. These are all things that all play into the whole climate change issue as well because, you know, we know the flooding is one of the most major issues that are happening with a lot of, you know, um, well, certainly in areas where, you know, you're on rivers or certainly, and, you know, we're, we're waterbound here on the island. So um, these are issues that certainly would uh, affect us greatly. And one of the most frustrating things is sometimes, sometimes you have to deal with like m- little issues to address big issues. Mm-hmm. And that's the interesting part I find about municipal government. We did not have any tree development regulations in our landscaping requirements. So basically what that means is that somebody could go in and create res- uh, you know, a development of residential lots and have no requirement whatsoever to ever plant a tree. And we've seen it happen. We go up and lo- have a look around Camount Terrace. Airport Heights had a good deal of that happen as well too, and Southlands. And that is a direct result of not having a proper policy on trees. And it's something very, very simple. And you know what? You know, I've been tormented, of course, about being a tree hugger. And I say, absolutely, I am. And you know why? Because it's essential for uh, a livable city. It helps us, you know, with water retention, oxygen production, and also for mental health, actually. And uh, so all of those things help feed into climate change. So even though it seems like a very simple thing, you know, over here that, you know, I've been lobbying for six years to get a tree development regulation in place because there was no political will on council, finally just happened this year. I kept at it and kept at it and finally it happened. That will make a difference. 
decades down the road. The fact that we just now have a requirement to actually make sure that we have at least one tree in new residential lots. Doesn't seem like a lot, but it will be in the future. And that's what I like, is I like to be a big picture thinker, but control even little things mm-hmm. that can control that larger picture. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where is St. John's on kind of having a biking plan? Because, I mean, I know I used to do triathlons, and um, I almost used to hate to go out on my bike because yeah. the city seems so dangerous. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of my friends now just, like, who still bike, they just bike um, kind of the apparatus to practice at home. Right. Uh, so where, where are we to in kind of getting a biking plan for the city and you know and that's an important climate change issue too. oh no for sure it is absolutely and i've been fully supportive of the bike the bike plan implementation right from the get-go and that certainly came in when we our former traffic engineer was in place and and shani duff actually who was the deputy mayor at the time when i was first on council was a big advocate of that as well and um we you know we had a plan it was it was rolled out but unfortunately there was no education there was nothing behind it that actually helped boost it because the public are ignorant. I mean, it's great for young people who actually understand that, you know, biking is a viable form of transportation. But when we're dealing with an older population and our demographic is definitely more towards the senior end, um, we have a lot of education uh, that is going to be necessary to train people to understand how to share the road. Um, I think that there were, you know, there were mistakes that were certainly made in the original plan. Uh, but the thing is, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. We started something. Let's now have a look at it, revise it, see what, what's working, what isn't working. I, too, uh, feel the same way. I love to ride my bike, but I don't feel safe enough on the roads as is. So I, I do ri- ride in some areas, but a lot of times I'll ride on sidewalks if I can, mm-hmm. uh, if I need to. But right now, I think what we have to do is start taking, you know, steps in terms of progressing the bike plan. And like I said, do a review of what hasn't worked, what is working. But there is a move right now to start looking at expanding trail systems to accommodate um, uh, bike uh, transit as well. And I think that that's a good uh, route to start as well, too, because we do have to be gentle. We can't just kind of come down with the big heavy hammer on, on a society that really, you know, really doesn't get it at this stage of the game. We have lots of people who want to bike, but there's a lot, a lot more people out there, I think, who just don't get it. So, you know, education is going to be key. But I think we just have to roll it out in stages. And right now, I do know that the city has, has been working with a bike task force. We have a, a new traffic engineer who's, uh, who's a bit of a cracker, I must say. He's pretty good. And, uh, and I'm, I'm feeling very optimistic about the suggestions he's been bringing forward. And again... Uh, looking at best practices in other municipalities that are similar. Mm-hmm. We have a very unique environment here in St. John's. Really Look at all the hills. <laughs> We're not Amsterdam, right? You know, so it's uh, it's it does require different planning uh, mm-hmm. it, it, and and different challenges. You know, problem solving to address. But uh, but I am still hopeful and I'm very supportive of it. Um, so one of your biggest hurdles or one of your biggest hopes to change or revise, and I might have stated that wrong, is the municipal act. Is it, oh, yes, the Munici- Municipal Act has been just like one of the most stifling things of all time. I mean, it's archaic. It still deals with horse and buggies and things like that. Um, ma- many of the issues that uh, I've been dealing with, oh, no, we can't do it because it's uh, uh, provincial regulations, because it's provincial regulations. The taxi, regu- same thing with the, um, the big issue with taxi regulations, um, because it's governed under the Highway Traffic Act, mm-hmm. is the issue of criminal record checks and vulnerable uh, record checks of the actual cab drivers, which are not in place right now. 
And that's a serious issue. That's a serious issue for us as women. And it's also a very serious issue for anybody in our society, mm-hmm. but especially vulnerable people, seniors, children, you know, women. Um, I'm not saying that men don't get attacked either, but it is, it's something that we need to get a handle on. And we've been negotiating with the province for some time, and they've just put up their hands and said, nope, we're not touching it. And it's really unfortunate because it is something that is desperately needed uh, in order to ensure safety for people who are doing taxi transit. And it's also an important thing for taxi drivers too. And and then on the other side of things, there's also issues that where we want to ensure that our taxi drivers are actually going to be protected because a lot of those are men and women as well. And you know they've been attacked and you know had to deal with criminal activity as well. So that is something it's challenging, right? Even though we give out the taxi licenses at the city, and oftentimes they can be grandfathered. We do not have the, the legislative capability to actually go out and enforce somebody to have a criminal record check or a vulner, vulnerability uh, uh, check. So it's, uh, you know, that's, that's frustrating. So you're always playing ping pong ball with the province on these kind of issues. Uh, same thing in the environmental issue with the plastic bag issue. Same, same kind of thing. Like uh, years ago, actually, when I was first uh, elected, I worked very hard in conjunction with an environmental agency that was called Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides, Newfoundland and Labrador. And the big push was for uh, banning cosmetic pesticides. Now, we're not talking about agriculture. We're not talking about anything other than all that uh, really uh, tough chemical spray that you put on dandelions to kill the dandelions on your lawn, uh, which is totally unnecessary. So that's called cosmetic pesticides. And we've been seeing that right across the country in many municipalities that people have banned it because what happens to that, that, those chemicals? They end up in your water table. That's going to end up in your drinking water eventually. And, and so why are we spraying unnecessary chemicals on our lawns just so we can get rid when you can do it in other, with other different methods, labor-oriented or otherwise? Um, but again, that was something that we couldn't do at the city of St. John's level. We had to do it at the provincial level. So sometimes it's very frustrating because you don't actually have the legislative control to do a number of big picture items that could benefit the people in the city of St. John's. But I also wear the hat that, do you think I just give a damn about the people who live in the city? Really, I care about our province. And, uh, you know, it might be in our minds that we have this fixed boundary line, you know, that's great for the election, you know, that says we're constituted in St. John's. But you know what, we need to work together with our neighboring communities. So I'm a big proponent of regional development, you know, and economic development as well, too, working together with, with our neighbors, right? Um, one of the other issues that you're really well known for, and I think you're probably one of the uh, only voices on council that really speaks about it, is um, addressing mental health issues in the city. Um, so do you want to tell us about kind of why that's important to you and what you think we should be doing as a municipality? Well, that's all about quality of life. It's really fascinating. Yeah, no, I do have a, a very uh, a deep, deep um, uh, respect for people who've been working in the community to help people who have mental health issues. We, we all deal with mental health issues. Uh, mental illness is something that is like any other kind of illness. It's just that it carries a lot of stigma and we're still not there yet. So I think that it's a really important issue. Uh, I do have family members that, you know, are, are, have mental illness. And, you know, every day when I hike Signal Hill or whatever I do, it's because I want to maintain good mental health. So these are things that are very important to me personally, uh, but it's crucial in our society. And uh, um, so I got involved uh, five years ago 
I decided I had a little secret fantasy in the back of my mind that I wanted to swim a channel. And it was because I was uh, an ocean swimmer. I love swimming in the ocean. I'm not mm-hmm. a triathlete. Don't get me, go, don't think <laughs> me I'm doing neither. that all the time, right? But I like to bob in the salt water, uh, <laughs> and I can swim. And uh, so I decided, you know what? I finally got up enough courage after actually speaking with a good friend of mine, uh, T. A. Loeffler, who is, you know, incredibly inspiring. Uh, and as soon as I outed myself to her about this fantasy that I had, I knew I had to do it. So. I went and I approached Canadian Mental Health Association, Newfoundland Labrador, and I said, listen, I have this thing that I would like to do. It's a bucket list item. I'd like to do a swim across the channel. I'd like to swim the Bell Island Tickle. And I'd like to do it as a fundraiser and awareness program for, um, for Canadian Mental Health Association. Of course, they all, you know, laughed and giggled and everything. But, of course, they were delighted. And uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. Like most things, uh, you know, I don't. I just am driven by a dream or a passion. And uh, and I see it through. So that year, we started making plans. I started training in the pool. And I actually got six other people to come along with me. Jody Richardson, Lynn Moore, you know, our fabulous lawyer. Many other people, right? And, and astute swimmers as well. And we we did it. We swam 5.1 kilometers, right, <laughs> across the tickle. And all of that was um, very empowering for me personally, but it was also an incredible opportunity to show a parallel between personal challenges and mental health and how they are intrinsically linked and how we can, you know, just be more open about it. And this year we celebrated our fifth year of the Tickle Swim for Mental Health, and one of the swimmers actually was a young man uh, who at 14 years of age had a nervous breakdown and was then later diagnosed bipolar. And I just thought he was one of the most bravest, bravest people that I knew. Um, he went through uh, the whole medical system, received help, you know, medication, therapy, whatever it was. And now he's in university doing well and, you know, it stepped up to actually do the swim. I just thought this is what it's about. This is what it's about. So I feel very, very strong about mental health, how that impacts all of us. And I think that, so that's something on a higher level that I do, you know, on a volunteer capacity. But I think it does relate to the municipal work as well. I think we really do have to look out, even though we don't have a health mandate, that's a provincial and a federal issue. We don't have a mm-hmm. health department. But we do have have um, the um, capacity to build communities that actually enhance our mel- mental health. And I think through recreation, through beautiful trails, through access to the outdoors, to accessibility, to walkability, to making it better for us to get out in, in the doldrums of the winter, all of those things play into it. So I think that, you know, again, small things that mm-hmm. lead to a bigger picture. And it's interesting that you say that because when we talked to both Maggie and Hope, both of them mentioned the importance of walkability to postpartum depression. Yes. Which is something that only a female candidate would think of, I I believe. Yeah. Um, I've just wondered if there's kind of things we can do as a city. Like I know um, 
like lots of the parks have yoga in the park and stuff in the summertime. Are there things like the end is, you know, yoga on George and sunsets of Osna and Signal Hill and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Can you think of any things like that that we can do, like, you know, group yoga, group meditation classes to kind of, um, you know, teach people kind of healthy coping mechanisms? I think that we're getting there. I think the city's actually been making some progress in that area. Certainly we've been, there's been a big focus on, uh, you know, new recreation facilities, certainly the Paul Reynolds Center is a phenomenal center uh, you know and of course it's built for everybody and we do have programs that you know people who are in financial need you know who do need assistance you know we do have programs that help people so you know I like that accessibility aspect um, because I would never want to support anything that didn't support everybody right Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think we're starting to move that way Uh, we also have in the city which is not just the city's job but also it's Grand Concourse it's East Coast Trail we have some of the Mm -hmm. most beautiful trail systems probably in the world Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that we should continue that route Um, one interesting example that I found was in Airport Heights in this past year and a half which was part of Ward 4, soon to be part of Ward 1, because the boundaries are changing. But there's an area right at the bottom, just off of Airport Heights Drive, um, which is there's a beautiful trail system that comes up from Virginia River, comes all the way up, it comes up to Airport Heights, and then all of a sudden you get to the bottom of McNiven Place, and boop, it stops. There was a development that was put in place that, again, didn't account for the fact that we this trail system was there. So from McNiven Place to Durness in Airport Heights, there's no trail. It just kind of falls off. And then it starts up again in Durness and goes on beautifully right on up to Three Palm Barrens near Pippi Park. All we need is that little section and we can make a continuum. If I decide that I want to hop on the Virginia Trail and walk all the way to Pippi Park, right? Or, you know, I could do that anytime and that would be a continuum. I think we really need to keep an eye on trail systems um, um, throughout the city. So I've been working really hard to basically ensure that that section gets addressed and we do have the land there. It looks like it's it's uh, feasible. So we're going to co- create the connection again. So again, small things, but big picture items. I know that as a hiker, that's something that's really important to me. And yeah, we are seeing more interest certainly in uh, wellness. We um, Several years ago, we hired a wellness coordinator at the city, which was the first time that anything like that had ever transpired. And I think one of the most incredible departments that we actually have is the Department of Recreation, because that's where they deal hands-on with a lot of inclusion accessibility issues, which other areas, you know, don't probably touch on as quite as efficiently. So I think that we're moving there, but I think that there's, we still have a long ways to go. And I think that we really need to concentrate on winter health. Yes, especially in, in the city. <laughs> it's easy in the summertime. We got a beautiful summer. We had a great summer this summer. It's easy. You can get out. You can go swim. You, you know, you, we do have access to beautiful things here. And just like I said, Signal Hill, I mean, that's my mantra. You know, when I feel like my head is going to pop off, it's great. I just go and I hike the hill and then it blows out all the carbon and I'm ready to deal with the issues of the day. But in the wintertime, it's a different story. So I think that we need to really look at creating more interesting things that people can do in the winter time that affects our mental health that affects mm-hmm. our overall you know well-being and you're right you know there's like there's nothing like getting out for a sunday hike mm. to like clean all the cobwebs out of your head yep. before you go back to work that's on right Monday. so Ex- you're right access to you know good trails and parks and things like that are 
mental health issues. And I think that as women, oftentimes we are the ones who oftentimes can put our own self-care at the last of the list, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, and and if you're a mom, then it's just a composite there. You know, like I said, I started when uh, on council when my youngest was four years old and uh, it was a challenge. Uh, And, you know, I kind of carried him like a football underneath my arm to many of the meetings. And that opens up a whole other point of discussion, which is how do we actually encourage women into politics when we don't have any support system for them? I recall actually having a meeting, special meeting. So we have these private meetings that happen before the public council meeting. The private meetings basically deals with legal issues or staffing issues. So obviously it's stuff that doesn't go out to the Mm -hmm. public. and, you know, there's always the ongoing leak. Somebody's leaking something somewhere, right, you know, to the media or otherwise. And uh, so, you know, in an effort to try to shut it down, I remember Mayor O'Keefe at the time in, in one of the meetings saying, oh, he was going to take everybody's, we, we were, he was going to veto having cell phones in the meeting. And I just looked at him. I mean, here I am, single mom, four-year-old, plus I have two older children, nine and, and ten as well. Um, and, uh, or, you know, te- early teens at that point. And I, all I remember was thinking, there is no way. You're not taking my phone from me because this is my only connect to my children. If there's anything, any emergency that happens with my four-year-old, then I'm it. So, you know, so again, that seems like a small issue, mm-hmm. but I fought it and I won it. And and I think that we need to look at more of those things and certainly childcare. Uh, I, I cannot tell you the number of times that I brought my uh, my son uh, you know, with his, his 3DS or whatever, or his, you know, his books or whatever he had sitting down at the back of the back of the public meeting in the EB foreign room and, you know, nobody to take care of him. Mm-hmm. And we need to start putting that lens on about how we can support women. We can support women with families, women with children. Uh, you know, now we're dealing with uh, women who are caretakers for seniors. You know, mm-hmm. there has to be mm-hmm. better resource there. I'm not talking about huge costs, mm-hmm. but I'm talking about just putting that lens on so that we can be more supportive. I think the um, the government of Alberta has kind of been leading on that, where Rachel Notley is in place out there. Mm. Um, but, you know, I remember when Charlene Johnson had her baby, when she was an MHA, she was the first sitting MHA to ever have a baby. Yeah. And they didn't know what to do. They did, <laughs> yeah. Like, they didn't know how to deal with maternity leave because there was no policy on it. Yeah. And that wasn't really that long ago. Yeah. And, you know, the gym that I go to, one of the gyms I go to is a women's gym, and they got a daycare center. We can have a daycare center in the gym. We can have a daycare center at City Hall, can't yeah. Way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that's, that's, and so, and I think that, you know, that will, you know, obviously I'll continue to push, push in those areas, but now, you know, with the, with seeing more progressive women candidates stepping up, we know that this is going to start changing a little bit, hopefully the environment will, and that will actually create demands mm-hmm. for it. And we'll, we will see some change happen. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a honestly malicious intent. I think it's just ignorance. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that, you know, they've yeah. just never had to deal with it before. It was a non-issue, certainly for the men around the table, many of whom are, you know, retirement age. You know, they're not dealing with any issue, family issues. Right. Not in the same way. And um, so, you know, that that creates, you know, a completely different perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot more single mothers than there used Absolutely. to be now too, right? Exactly. Family like, structures have totally shifted. Like a generation before me, nobody got divorced. Everybody I went to high school with is almost as divorced these days, right? Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's a lot more single. Yeah, I think most households are led by single women these days. There's a lot. 
And yeah. I will also mention to you that at least my real estate uh, friends have mentioned that oftentimes the first time house buyers are always women. They're the ones who usually go out and buy the homes first. Um, and that is an interesting thing because, again, you know, we're talking about a community where we, we draw most of our, our, our uh, money for our budget and all the services that we provide is property tax. Mm-hmm. So who are the people who are actually paying most of the property tax, right? You know, at, the, at least out of the first-time buyers, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I think it is a changing environment. I think it's exciting. And uh, actually, I did put something on our upcoming finance committee actually about those kind of supports for women as well. I, I noted something that was happening across the country, as you mentioned. So, uh, yeah. And, I, I, you know, and there's, there's a lot of great things happening out there in the world. I just want to reiterate that, you know, we don't have to keep on reinventing a wheel because there's great things, progressive things happening elsewhere. But we do live in a very unique uh, city and an environment. So we mm-hmm. take those ideas, we look at them and model them and then make them malleable like Play-Doh and stuff and just change them so that they actually fit, mm-hmm. you know, the needs of our, our community. And um, so I find that exciting because we don't have to start from scratch. There's lots happening out there that we can learn from. Mm-hmm. I think um, Alberta is actually into a policy on breastfeeding in their provincial legislature. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, it should just be standard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm still yeah. waiting for the midwifery legislation myself yeah. because I was uh, somebody who availed of uh, midwifery services when I had my three children, and uh, you know that's long overdue here. I mean, you know, that was that was a staple in our province, and I think that you know again that's not my mandate because that doesn't fall under the city of St. John's, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to be vocal about those kind of things. Um, it's important; it affects all our lives, right? You know, have have options for those kind of services. I think mm-hmm. when I was living in Britain, the norm was to have a midwife deliver your baby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think in Ontario, they started that too. Let's start you with a midwife and then... Yeah, doctors know. called in. Yeah, yeah. There's an issue. Yeah. But, you know, on the bigger picture in terms of the city, I mean, planning, city planning is huge and the economy is huge. Mm-hmm. What we do with people's tax dollars. And, I, you know, I will bring it back to that because that's, that's, that is massive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're dealing with, you know, we've been talking about issues that affect women, you know, and trying to encourage women into a more supportive role, you know, to enter into politics and be supported mm-hmm. in that role. But, you know, it, there's, there's so many other things that could support everybody and families, everybody. If we're just a little bit um, smarter about how we engage smaller and mid-sized business, I think that the city of St. John's, even though we're not a business incubator by any means, but we could be a lot more business friendly. Uh, You know, I have suggested certainly to our city manager and to our council that we need to look at how the front part of City Hall, which really is this dead zone, an empty space there, if you go into the 311 Mm -hmm. where you pay your bills and everything, that should be an access to information uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, for people who are first-time business uh, upstarts. Um, there should be all that information and resource there because it's a lot of red tape that people have to go through in order to start businesses. And in this economy, we have to start looking at supporting local. Mm-hmm. We have to start supporting local more. We have to start figuring out how at-home businesses, that's where people, that's where the seeds are set. And then, you know, if people expand and want to go on beyond that, then they move out and, you know, get a commercial space or whatever. But it's those at-home base um, kind of businesses that really, you know, will help our city over a longer period of time and in a more sustainable way, right? So mm-hmm. I think economy, the economic side of that, there's a lot of work that we can do. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and the other issue, of course, you know, that I'll mention, of course, is mixed-use neighborhoods, planning, mm-hmm. how we create communities, um, I was just shocked when I basically re-entered council 
in 2016. I was gone for three years. There were massive changes that happened in my time away from council. Uh, we had a complete restructuring, a whole pile of staff that were, um, you know, um, uh, pensioned off, and, and there was a, a massive changeover, a structure where we had now five deputy city managers as well as mm-hmm. a new a city manager stepping up. And, um, and the committee structures changed too. So I walked back in as the Ward 4 councillor uh, and discovered Camount Terrace where I went, oh my God, what happened? Beautiful community of people, mm-hmm. beautiful houses, but the city dropped the ball on the planning. It was shocking. The streets were, were uh, created like freeways. They were so wide, it's unbelievable. So it, all it does is encourage speeding. There's no safety there. There's no crosswalks. There's no trails in between uh, the community. And of course, the community center the land had to be actually bought back from developers in order to do that. So, you know, the, somebody dropped the ball. You know, everybody was certainly accountable for that. But I, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you want to avoid in the future because these things should be put in place. And I will say, you know, for all of the criticism that certainly Danny Williams um, gets, and, you know, maybe some of it de- deservedly so. I'm not here to judge in, in one shape. But I will tell you the one thing that I do know is that, He's spending money on a very well-planned community where, you know, uh, water retention ponds are being uh, being built. Uh, it's a mixed-use neighborhood. Everything is well thought out in advance. So um, not saying that that's what we need to do. We know that that'll probably be a much higher-end kind of community. But it does set kind of a, a good tone for the kind of planning that we need to do where we don't create these endless suburbs with no resource. In Camelot Terrace, for example, there are, I think, seven commercial uh, zones that were designated, zoned commercial in the sea of residential, which is essential because, you know, if we want people to be able to walk, not only do we need the trails and everything, but we also need to be able to walk to the dentist's office or walk to the daycare or walk to the corner store. But if we don't do that, well, we're all going to be shopping at box stores forever. We're going to be hopping in the car, just going. So it's important to have these embedded in your community, mm-hmm. right? And... Um, but, you know, certainly there's always ongoing pressure from development. And it's not to say developers are evil, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, because they're not. They're just opportunists. There are people who are seeking opportunities to, to obviously profit and, and create things in, in a community. But we have to be very cognizant of the fact that we need mixed-use neighborhoods. We need to have parks. We need to have trails. We need to have commercial zones. And we need to have residential. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the city has not been great on that record I mean and everything I have heard about Galway is that it is a very well-planned community yeah um I mean I guess one of the concerns I've heard expressed is not so much even about Galway just about kind of the increasing price of housing not just in St. John's but in all urban areas and you hear the word gentrification used increasingly and you know I remember like my first apartment in St. John's was probably $435 a month and now an apartment in St. John's is $1,200 a month so you know what kinds of things can we do to you know, make sure there's affordable housing and the working poor still have access to the city in that kind of environment. Absolutely. Because, I, you know, and I recall myself as a single parent, mm-hmm. I was just out of a relationship with these children, three children. I wanted to buy a house. I wanted to, I wanted to set up a house and I needed rock. And, and I remember the struggle that I had to go through in order to uh, be qualified for a mortgage and, and pr- mm-hmm. proceed from there. I can only imagine what it must be like now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking years ago for me. Um, affordable living, affordable housing is huge. 
Um, I went to the National Conference of Federation of Canadian Municipalities there a few months back, and it is the number one issue right across the country. Affordable housing is it. Because affordable housing feeds mental health. Affordable mm-hmm. housing feeds our quality of, of living, whether or not we're actually going to retain a population or whether or not people are actually going to have to move away because it's too the price, the cost of living is just way too high. I want to know that, you know, people have opportunities to live, you know, in mm-hmm. a safe, clean environment. And I think that's a basic human right. So affordable housing, yes, is huge. And the city of St. John's um, certainly has St. John's housing, just like the province has Newfoundland Labrador housing, which obviously caters to people who, you know, uh, you know, some some who just will never have an opportunity to make make more money. And, you know, they, they have to live within a certain means. Um, but but it but it's much more than that it's not just social services uh, issue anymore this is for the bulk of the population now and i think that we have to start looking at how we can create more affordable housing opportunities in all kinds of structures one of the things that i had suggested and it was just one 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 possibility but um but is the kind of the creation of a space that actually incorporates affordable housing with other amenities Cochrane Street is a beautiful, Cochrane Street uh, United Church is a perfect example of something like that. They, you know, the congregation was shrinking, but they still wanted to have um, a a beautiful church that they could go to and pray in, but they didn't, you know, they didn't require all that space. How are they going to feed, you know, how are they going to help their community? Because it's, you know, it's all in the the name of Christianity. How are they going to serve the population and the community around them, which is, they do a ton of charity work. So they decided to opt for this model, and they actually went ahead and developed this model and converted part of the church into affordable housing units. And I think that's fantastic. And I think that that's the direction that we need to start looking at, how we can create more of those all the way throughout the city, not just create a block of low-income low housing. You know, we need to integrate it more within the city. And certainly I have <laughs> been talking for ages about my desire to want to create a production space, which has been itemized for decades that is necessary um not a not a performance space or an exhibition space but an actual creation space mm-hmm. a production space for artists like visual artists theater and music and uh, there's been a real deficiency in the community for a long time and there are lots of empty schools lots of empty buildings mm-hmm. out there where we could have the opportunity mm-hmm. to create that plus marry it with affordable housing mm-hmm. One of, one of the most incredible models that I saw, uh, and again, this is not, again, you look at the model and change it for your own community, but in Toronto, um, Joe Mahevic was a city councillor in, in Toronto who was very progressive-minded and worked with community. They basically uh, converted an old train station in a really lower socioeconomic area into affordable uh, artist studios and affordable artist living. And they also, on the side of it, created community gardens well, they got a food bank there. The whole area has just been an infusion of creation, mm-hmm. of productivity, and it's also created a, an economy in an area that was economically depressed. So again, it's not always about the big cash cow. It's not always about the oil industry or the big thing that Muskrat Falls or whatever these big wins we're always looking for. Mm-hmm. It's about creating local, sustainable projects uh, that help... Uh, feed people and give them a quality of life that they need. Not everybody needs to, you know, have that kind of quality. They just want to know that they're safe in the community and have a good community to raise their families. 
Okay. Um, you already touched on the issue of, um, I guess, business development. So what kinds of things, because, you know, we had a number of businesses in the downtown shutdown and things like that. Mm. Um, you know, what t- kinds of things do you think we can do to facilitate business development in the city? Uh, that's a that's a really interesting one because the vacancy issue is, you know, a very contentious issue, certainly. And I've lived through, you know, I mean, I'm 52. So I've lived through a couple of couple of decades here now where I lived through the 80s and the 90s and the 90s, early 90s in downtown St. John's was very depressing. I mean, people think it's bad now, but I can guarantee you if we had a look back, every second store in on Water Street, pr- pretty much every second or third store was closed. Um, and I, you know, as a young artist, it was ideal for me because I could walk in and talk to the landlord and say, hey, can I rent your space for a month and do an art show? And and of course, as we see in many other cities, as soon as anything creative happens in a space or, you know, artists take over, it draws a lot of great energy around it, a lot of attention and boom, something commercial will go in there right afterwards. Um, so I think keeping an eye on artists and creative people as being leaders uh, instead of being, you know, the, you know, instead of this attitude that, oh my gosh, they're just, you know, always wanting something for nothing. Uh, really, I think the creative community is one of the biggest uh, economic drivers in, in all the cities that, that basically have transpired. So if we can, you know, work with different ideas, common ground, we've got great things happening now downtown. There are future things that are happening. But I think dealing with the vacant properties um, is how we can creatively work with those. Um, I think is key. And Business and the Arts, NL, have been tackling that a little bit in some of the vacant spaces. Uh, first of all, a, again, a simple thing that could help in a larger picture. One of the things that I did in the Loblaw space, of course, being the Ward 4 counselor in Churchill Square, was that there was this vacant, derelict uh, property that's owned by Loblaws that has been hugely contentious for the people of the area, certainly for the students here at the university because the supermarket was, it was you know, no longer available. And the seniors that live in the Churchill Square area, there's a lot of seniors who live in that area. There was no access to anything. And then on top of it all, not only was there no supermarket, but there's this derelict building sitting there. So I have been you know, negotiating with Loblaws. You can't make them do anything. Um, but negotiating with Loblaws to try to see how can we improve the look of the property first and foremost so that we can I- eliminate the derelict status because by even making something look a little bit more attractive draws a positive response from the community and potential. And so I said, you know, why don't we do something with the windows, right? Because you got all this brown paper hanging off of newspapers. It looks terrible. So I went down, actually, with my, my, my young son and perused the um, archives at the city and came up with a whole bunch of images because I knew that you know people love history in, in Newfoundland and um, got Loblaws to pay for it. And we did the windows in the Loblaws and it just immediately just changed the tone of the building. Now it wasn't to be all end all. Uh, certainly nothing has happened there yet, it's coming. Um, but what it did was give people hope and, and, a, and a positive clean face. And, um, and now we are expecting a development permit from uh, a local developer to actually uh, do, uh, that building has been found to be environmentally unsound. It is gonna come down and there will be something proposed that I think would be a great benefit to the local community and it's coming. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just the process of how you actually make something more palatable, how you engage. And I think that we do have a responsibility to engage more with the developers and see how we can work more together. Doesn't mean appease them, but it does mean work with them, Mm -hmm. right? So I think, so on that note of how that face, that superficial imagery 
really helped bring hope back into a community and also draw some positive attention to a building that needed needed you know a plan i think we could do that in the downtown too all of those properties that are vacant you know there's i've i've gone to i was just came from there actually and there's a number that are derelict looking and really messy i think that there should be actually a a, a requirement for vacant properties to actually ensure that the facade is uh, is kept uh, perhaps to have like you know images in the windows just while we're riding through until the next opportunity arises mm-hmm. and that helps um, you know create a little bit of positive attention but it also helps your neighbor next door who is actually working really hard to keep their property looking good to have a viable business so that they don't have this derelict thing hanging off of them right next door it's about working together is there anything we can do on parking downtown? Because I think there's more of a kind of perceived mm. issue than real issue. Although yeah. I, f- I find parking downtown is expensive. Um, but, you know, uh, I stopped going downtown because there was a restaurant I used to go there all the time. And the parking meters next to it were shut down. And then, you know, someone said to me, well, why don't you just go to the new parking garage that was opened up there where the CBC used to be on Duckworth? That's right. And I I didn't, like, I'd been living away. I didn't know there was a parking garage there. Is there anything, I mean, in this age of kind of social media and internet and stuff, like, it it shouldn't be that expensive to have a, you know, a campaign on this is where you can park or this is where the parking garages are. Like, do you have any ideas on what we can do to make people more aware of Of where the parking opportunities are? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I'm somebody who drives a lot, too. And, uh, you know, I, I spend a fair bit of time downtown. And I got to say, I don't have a lot of difficulty finding a parking space. <laughs> I th- I still think I, there's part of part of me that thinks that, um, you know, we are still spoiled. We are all still to be expected park right in front of the business <laughs> that we want to shop at and get back in the car and go on again. And um, and that's not a reality in any city. Uh, you know, you really do have to go and pay for parking and go into a parking garage so I, do, I definitely hear what you're saying, uh, but we do have a lot of parking available. And, you know, I don't want to get on that train of continuing to provide more and more, more and more yeah, parking yeah. all the time, because what are we creating then, especially in the downtown? I mean, there are parking needs. Just don't get me wrong. Obviously, we're a very car-driven society, mm-hmm. but it would be great if we could start getting off that train and start getting onto uh, other modes of, of transit, you know, make it more bike-friendly. Obviously, our metro bus system is something that really needs to have a, you know, a major rethink and, uh, and also link to other, the outside communities. Uh, you know, that is starting to happen slowly, um, but uh, I think we need to have a very strong lens on that. Um, because right now, the people who are, you know, using the, the, the bus system, students, mm-hmm. seniors, people with disabilities, but it's not the bulk of our society. Right, and the buses are riding around oftentimes with not enough uh, clients clients on them or cust- uh, you know riders on them, and so I think that that's a big job to actually start tra- transitioning people into that. I remember when my daughter, who's he- heading to university for the first time this fall, um, you know she was starting to do some courses at the College of North Atlantic. You know, that was the first time she was getting on the bus, right? And, you know, and you know what? She got on the bus and she was taking it all the time. She said, this is great. <laughs> right? You know, she was like, you know, it's like it's there. So we have to do a better job of showing the opportunities, improving, you know, the route system and the, the time you have to wait, making sure that the bus stops are cleared so that we're not standing out in the middle of the road while we're waiting for a bus in the wintertime, these kind of things. But there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> there's a lot of work to do 
but it is a world full of possibilities, really. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's not options, right? Yeah. I, I do think there are parking options. I think there's a perception that yeah. there are no parking options. I agree with right. you yeah. on that one. I agree with you on that one. I think that there's more than ample parking uh, available. Some of it's more expensive. Some of it's private mm-hmm. lots. Some of it's public parking. And, but we have all of these public spaces now. What I'm really excited about in the downtown is actually the fact that because of the economy, it's funny how things work. Uh, you know, some of these huge condominium complexes, which were originally supposed to be for purchase, are actually, because of the dip in the economy, are now going to be apartments. And I thought, fantastic! Because, you know, just like the old Newfoundland telephone building there, right on the top of McBride's Hill, you know, that strange tall tower, <laughs> right? That's going to be apartments. And I think that that's fantastic. Because what is that going to do to the downtown? It's going to draw young professional people to Walking. live in the downtown and they're going to want to eat in the downtown they're going to want to party in the downtown and i think it's going to breathe such incredible life into the downtown of st john so i'm i'm very excited about those kind of things so speaking of the bus as you said earlier um you were the only councillor who voted against the budget this year yeah um and why was that and the the bus was the clincher for me yeah but the increase in the in the transit fees was the clincher for me and it was hard. It was really difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it's not easy to stand up against, you know, the, the will of most of your colleagues and actually set yourself apart. Uh, but, um, you know, when I, the one thing for me for sure is that, you know, look, the wealthy are going to take care of themselves. And this doesn't mean that they shouldn't have rights like everybody else. But who is going to look out for the most vulnerable in our society? And I feel a really strong sense of obligation to do that. And that's, again, comes back to the mental health issues. It comes back to the seniors. It comes back to people with disabilities. It comes back to young children. And you know what? If we're going to start putting pressure on in already tough economic times, um, and we're going to start putting the pressure on the people, you know, who are using these services who really have very little, you know, uh, you know um, financial means, then, you know, that's, that's where the buck stops for me. So... There were a lot of changes, and I didn't agree with, you know, several things that were in that budget. Um, But the final straw for me was the Metro bus fees increase. I just couldn't couldn't support it. So those are things that I'm always going to be looking out for. And, you know, and I'm not perfect. I'm going to make lots of mistakes, just like everybody does. And you know what? Willingly, this is it. You know, I'm very transparent. But I think that, you know, we always have to keep an eye on um, people in our society who, you know, the lower income and the middle class, for sure, because those are the ones that are, you know, that are feeling the real crunch right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I uh, well, I was going to ask you too more about um, accessibility. So that's one of the things we talked about with the other counselors, and you talked about a sustainable environment, especially people living downtown. They could just walk out of their building or move out of their building and be there. Um, So what plans or what issues do you think that St. John's faces with accessibility right now? Oh, well, you know, accessibility is huge. And accessibility, you know, is like a broad term that it takes in so much. Accessibility could mean somebody, you know, wheelchair access, you know, and making sure that curbs are actually designed in a way so you can get a wheelchair onto it and continue to, you know, go down a sidewalk or cross cross an intersection. And there's lots in our city that are not up to snuff, that people can't access, and they're being brought to us regularly. So we have to get smarter about those and make sure that we start improving that. Um, we're really lucky that we have a community services uh, committee, and one of the committees that's strongest on it is actually uh, inclusion services. 
And again, they're tied in very heavily with our recreation department as well. And uh, I, I must say, it's uh, I'm very excited about some of the staff and the things that they've been doing, especially over the past couple of years. Um, we also have increased inclusion services in recreation. And I know because personally, I have family members who, who have availed of these and they're just phenomenal programs. So we just have to c- continue to move down that road, uh, making sure that we, uh, you know, it's no good for me to be talking about it. I'm uh, my legs uh, work right, and uh, and I I don't have to try, try to uh, see if I can get around the city in a wheelchair and you know and be stumped, especially downtown because of course we live in a historic city which of course you know is very inaccessible. Um, so I think that whatever we can do to help that, one of the one of the people who is a huge mentor uh, for me in this area, who I have a great deal of respect for, and an organization that I have a great deal of respect for, is Empower NL. Kathy Hawkins with Inclusion NL. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she is a wealth of information, and she doesn't come down with a heavy hammer, and nor does the organization. But they're always talking about positive ways of improving the city so that we can have more access especially for people in wheelchairs, people who, who have are visually impaired, um, you know, audible so, uh, signals at intersections, things like that. There's, there's a lot of work to do. There's no doubt about it. But the only way to accomplish this is by having people, directly people who are dealing with these issues, mm-hmm. who can actually bring them forward and continue to hammer them in a committee level at the city. And that way we can continue to bit by bit and make improvements for everybody. Um, municipal planning has become a bit of an issue recently. I guess we've talked about it a little bit already. Uh, most recently, we saw the issue of the um, the restaurant owner who couldn't get his license downtown and um, the proposal to put a second road up Signal Hill because the residents are having problems with noise. Um, but, you know, I guess rather than talk about those issues, uh, let's talk about where you see that the city needs to go in terms of its municipal planning. Well, as one of the people who was harping uh, very loud, myself and actually Deputy Mayor Duff uh, were the ones who were continuously uh, uh, trying to get the municipal plan review on the table uh, because it was long overdue. It was over 10 years or something like that. It was due for a review. And so we were just like, oh, my gosh, let's update this. Let's update this. And you know what? It's not a simple, simple act. It's not a simple thing. Our planning department has been working tirelessly on this issue for a long time and really, really tried uh, to engage as best as possible the community to get input. And they really did. They went to all the special interest groups. They went to a number of different communities. They had hosted all kinds of public information sessions, did stuff online, and tried to collect as much information about the kind of city that people wanted to have uh, so that they could try to rearrange the vision. Because a municipal plan is just about the vision. What concerns me more, and, and actually, so we've rolled out this now, at least a draft form of the municipal plan. But what really I think is more of a concern for me than that at this stage of the game, because that exercise has is almost complete. Uh, obviously, there's still lots of feedback yet to be had from the public, but it's more the development regulations, because again, that's where the rubber hits the road. It's the development regulations that are actually the thing that's going to help us envision the things that we see in our municipal plan. So how do we change it? Tree development regulation, for example, right? Something that seems minuscule, but it could have like a huge effect over the next couple of decades. Uh, there's a whole myriad of issues like that in our development regulations that we need to look at with a fine tooth comb. And that's not going to happen before this election. 
that's going to happen throughout the, the beginning of the new council. And I think that that's what the public certainly needs to keep a really tight eye on, is what is going to change in our development regulations, because that's the stuff that's going to really hit us, mm-hmm. you know, from day to day. Um, you mentioned the bond cloud. Well, first of all, the, the second road up Signal Hill, that was one councillor's vision mm-hmm, and right. nobody even knew about that so that was not something that came from council number first and foremost and nor did I support it um, and he retracted it afterwards but um, the issue on Bon Claudi which is very contentious here's a family you know an immigrant mm-hmm. family that we really want to support I'm all over multiculturalism I want to ensure that you know we make sure to build a community we know we need the population Balkan food is great I can't I, look I was I was salivating I was going I can't wait for the Balkan restaurant right but as you dig a little bit deeper into that issue uh number one he didn't own the building mm-hmm. and number two the residents in the neighborhood were dying and waiting until that rezoning time frame actually expired because they had had horrific experience with a bar that was in that neighborhood for years that just eliminated their quality of life in that area so there were people who actually were really waiting uh, to see that time out that uh, commercial um, uh, zoning uh, timeout. And um, and so then, you know, then of course this beautiful concept comes in. He doesn't want a liquor license. He wants to do a restaurant, but of course it expired. But the, the problem with that issue, it, you know, specifically is um, what happens if the restaurant doesn't work, right? And we've already, we've got another commercial zone. That means that another bar, they could go in and have another... Uh, bar there could be something else happen so you it's not just the story about the the family uh you know who wanted to open up the balkan restaurant you know we're you know i bend over backwards to try to assist and help these people but we have to look at the whole neighborhood as well too because they were just dying for that to revert to a residential zone which it was originally so Uh, It's interesting. So what do you do? You problem solve. You try to figure out Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, work with the family as best as possible. We want to see them succeed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's looking very hopeful from the last discussion that I had that that they can find something that is actually commercially zoned in in right next door in the next next street over. And uh, if it's if it's feasible, then they'll open it up there and then there won't be any issues. So. You know, sometimes issues are not black and white. Sometimes mm-hmm. they require, <laughs> exactly, sometimes they require facilitation and just problem solving. And I, I have to say that out of all the things that I do, and I'm, you know, I try to remain humble all the time and, you know, come in thinking I know nothing, I'm just learning. And I think that's, you know, a good place to be. Um, but one of my strongest skills is actually facilitating uh, uh, community groups together. Uh, I really enjoy, like when there's this us and them thing that happens all the time, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it drives me. And I, I really feel like, uh, can we all just get off the email system here and just all sit down <laughs> together at a table? And that is something that women bring. I was going to say, yeah, women are consensus builders. They are. Which they is why are. we need, one of the main arguments why we need more women in politics. Yeah. 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 And so, and I've done that many times. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like, you know, boom, it's not like the situation is perfect. But what it does, I mean, even in my first term, I remember, well, on Tessier Place was a perfect example. We had a murder there that was uh, just horrendous for mm-hmm. the people who were living in the neighborhood. I mean, it's just a horrific situation. And it was crime and drug related. And uh, people were scared, people, mm-hmm. as they should be, you know. And so what do you do with that? A lot of he said, she said going on. Okay, so I said, enough is enough. And so I organized a meeting, got the RNC, got a number of the different community organizations together. 
community support agencies, the neighbors, everybody, just pull, pull everybody together so we can sit down together and try to figure something out. Now, did it solve all the problems in the neighborhood? No, it didn't. But what it did was actually bring the community together and the people who lived in the area, if they wanted to, they formed a neighborhood association. So now they have an opportunity to speak to each other about concerns and create their own little neighborhood watch, if you want to call it. And uh, it just helps them feel a little bit more secure, a little bit more safe and also more communicative. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, that's that's a help. Mm And I think that, that that can happen in so many different ways. I did that with the taxi, um, you know, regulation issue as well, too. Brought everybody together, same kind of thing. I just did it the other day. There's a contentious issue, you know, on the table in a neighborhood of a commercial business. Brought all 25 neighbors together plus the business owner together. It's tough talking. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's not easy. But it's good to have it all out on the table and have everybody have their say so at least you know what you're dealing with. And we live in a world now, too, where people just like to fight with each other on social media. I know. You know, I think President Obama had a right where it's like, just go have a coffee with these people. I know. <laughs> right? Exactly. And then you know, once they're a human, then, you know, all of a sudden, things st- you know, you got a human across the table from you. Mm-hmm. And you can see their humanity. Things start to happen. Yeah, it's true. I much prefer, you know, face-to-face kind of conversations. I, 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 you know, and if you can't do that, certainly by phone. Emails are great for documenting and archiving information and being, you know, pat about your answer. And, you know, a lot of people want to make sure to document these things, responses. And it's understandable. And that's the kind of world we live in. But there's nothing beats a phone call or a direct meeting person to person. And um, And people want to do everything by email these days because it seems like they want the written record or whatever. Well, they do. So Mm -hmm. that they can hold you to it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, understandably so. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, people, you know, people say one thing and do another oftentimes. So it's a record. But uh, in terms of actually problem solving, really, yeah, get yeah. down to it. Just have a conversation, mm-hmm. right? And uh, that's, that's really, and, you know, that's not power in politics. That's just understanding how you talk to your neighbor. That's mm-hmm. how, that's human respect. And the rule of thumb for politics is far, I never did political science. I never did, a, a, you know, a poli-sci degree. I mean, I've done gender studies courses. I've done sociology, mm-hmm. anthropology, all kinds of different things and, and fine arts. But I think it comes down to just basic human respect when mm-hmm. you're dealing with municipal government. Uh, you're dealing, the number one rule is that you acknowledge people and you offer them respect. They don't respect you, I'll never talk to you again. If anybody start calls me and swears on me or does anything un, you know, unsavory on Twitter or on the phone or email, I'll give you one chance. But if you come at me like that, then you're gone. I'm never gonna serve you because it's just not gonna happen. But I have to be on the other side you know, more than gracious, acknowledge that people have problems or issues, knowing that I can't solve every problem, but try your best to try to assist them. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the, the basic human rule of politics, mm-hmm. right? And I guess that brings me to my last question. You're a really easy interview because you keep leading to my next question. <laughs> um, what advice do you have for women who want to go into politics? Oh, yes. Okay. All right. Well, you know what? First of all, Ron, because <laughs> we know that women are leaders in the community. They already are, right? Right. It's just about stepping up that next step. And I think that it's not just about the women themselves. I think we have a, an obligation to encourage them, uh, recognize the leaders in our community and support them. So that's, that's very important. Um, one of the th- words of advice that I would certainly give any women that were successful, because I remember when I first got elected, uh, it was really interesting. And I was like a deer in the headlights. I didn't know what I was getting into. I was a huge learning curve uh, for the first year in particular. Uh, 
And I remember getting in there and for the general public, you need to understand that all the work happens at the committee level. All of the work in the city happens at the committee level. What you see in the chamber for city council on Monday night is just basically the residue. It's the leftover, and it might be a bit of drama, depending on who's, who's speaking. But it's the reporting of those committees. All of the work happens in public works committee, police and traffic committee, uh, the animal care and control. Well, actually, we have, uh, you know, that's, that has changed that committee structure. There's uh, all of these standing committees and then subsidiary uh, advisory committees, and that's where all the work gets, uh, gets done and the recommendations get made. And then those recommendations go to city council for approval. Make sure that you step into a strong role on the standing committees or the advisory committees right away. One of the first things that was told to me by my male counterparts was, oh, you're just starting, you know, you just step into an easy portfolio. So they said, oh, you do animal care and control, right? Don't you worry your pretty little head about this. <laughs> you got it, exactly. <laughs> and, and so anyway, so I did. I went ahead and, you know, of course, the joke, you know, in reverse, of course, is you've never seen anybody more passionate about their pets, you know, <laughs> than, than residents of the city, right? But... But it is true. Um, what I'm, what I say is, jump in, feet first. Yeah. You cannot just slowly. You know, it's one of those things. You've got a limited amount of time if you're elected. Uh, be brave. Just go in there. Know that you know nothing. But you know what? Most of the other other ones don't know anything either. <laughs> so don't feel like you're alone. Obviously, you you know, create allies and talk to people. Get mentors. Shani Duff was a, an incredible mentor for me. Mm-hmm. We didn't always agree on everything, but you know what? She she helped me learn the the ropes and the process, and I, I deeply respect her for that. Mm-hmm. But dive in, deep, mm-hmm. you know, go in deep and make sure that you get um, a chair position on a committee so that you can have an, a power power role. You have something to say, and you can represent. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's what that would be my one strongest piece of advice that I would mm-hmm. give anybody who's who's stepping in. And if the committee isn't there, create one. Create like one. You did. <laughs> <laughs> or revive it out of the, out of the dirt, yeah. the ones that's forgotten. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're, you're so right. You know, women are leaders in the community, and we do have all the skills to do this stuff. And, you know, I feel like when I'm at Equal Voice events, and I've been talking a lot about this study that was done in the United States, which showed, you know, women are far and away, like, more effective than their male counterparts in American politics. And then, you know, you talk about how, you know, social media is making things easier for women to get name recognition, and women have always been good communicators, and your experience as an organizer will make you good at get out the vote. And you can almost see the look, you know, the look change on women's faces, and oh yeah and you know like i think women are really excited about that kind of information being out there well you know it's really interesting because i just had this conversation with my campaign manager about this who's by the way is a woman um and uh uh really interesting because you know the there's a you know the people who are uh, vying for uh support right now on council there's you know a couple of dominant you know males in many areas but of course we've got this new influx of women who are coming up which is really exciting exciting but you know uh you know one of the things that's kind of being put out there is that okay well there's somebody over here who could be fiscally responsible and I could myself Sheila O'Leary could could step in as like the community person you know to give the other side which is true because I you know I do definitely have a community lens and certainly support but does that make me any less financially accountable because you know what I've been a single mom a businesswoman I've run a household successfully for decades and uh, so why am I discounting myself from being a financial, fi- financially smart individual who knows how to navigate this? 
because I'm community minded. It, it's not an either or. Mm-hmm. I know how to do both. Mm-hmm. And I think that many women know how to do both. I think that that, you know, women are multitaskers. And it's not and that's certainly not to downgrade, you know, our, my male counterparts, but we need to pump it up and we need to ensure that women know that they're qualified, build their confidence, tell women who are leaders, you know, that they can do it and step up and dive in. And I really, you know, even though I know it's kind of cliche right now, but the Sheryl Sandberg thing of leaning in, just get in there, mm-hmm. get in there, take a chance. And uh, I think then that's where you really reap the rewards, right? If you want somebody who knows how to meet budget, hire a single mom. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless there's anything you wanted to add, I really want to thank you for coming in. I'm always excited to talk about ideas and, you know, what I, what I would like to do, you know, for people in the city. Uh, you know, I feel I'm ripe and ready for a stronger leadership role. Um, you know, I, it's no secret to anybody that that's what I've been vying for. And it's not because the last thing I would like to say is because it really it's not about wearing the gold star on your head. The mayor, deputy mayor, it doesn't matter what you are. You still only have one vote. The reality is six votes. That's what you need if you want to have a progressive idea seen through on council. So it's about the team. And that's what I'm concentrating on. I want to make sure that we have a strong team because I could be out there barking at the moon again for another several years unless we have progressive people on that council who are willing to try new things, new ideas to try to make this a better place. I think it's really good that we got like a lot of working moms, single moms, like women who self-identify as working class, single mothers running this year. Yeah. I think it's really a testament to the fact that women didn't like what was going on in the city and decided to step up and say, you got to take care of our people too. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And make sure that we represent everybody. And it's not just about women. We also need to see people of different races step up. We need, mm-hmm. I would love to see somebody, you know, who could actually represent a disability, mm-hmm. you know, speak from experience, right? There's nothing like it, right, mm-hmm. to bring to the table. So, you know, we got we still have a long ways to go. But, you know, certainly getting half of the population represented is definitely something to, to, to create a target on. <laughs> yes. So thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Yeah. I'm delighted. Thank you.